ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the UI Breakfast Podcast. I'm your host, Jane Portman, and today our awesome guest is Steve McLeod, the founder of FeatureAppFold, also the founder of Saber Feedback. We're going to talk about desktop versus web applications. This episode is brought to you by UserList a lifecycle messaging tool for your SaaS product. At UserList, our mission is to make your founder journey more enjoyable and less overwhelming. That's why we built an email automation tool that does exactly what you need. No more, no less. Manage your users, segment them, and get in touch throughout their journey, all based on their behavior. Try UserList free whenever you're ready at userlist.com. Hi, Steve. Hi, Jane. Thanks for having me on the show. We're thrilled to learn from you. You have a quite extensive product experience right up the bootstrapper alley. So you have uh, multiple successful products. And so we're going to talk about those. Give us an overview of uh, the products you have and a bit of your background story. Okay, I'll go in reverse order. The background is that I live in Barcelona, Spain, where I run a small software company. Now, I don't sound very Spanish, and that's because I'm originally from New Zealand. I've been living in Spain for about 10 years. The software company has two products. Feature Upvote is a B2B SaaS that offers feature request tracking. It lets your customers openly add and upvote improvements to your product. Now, anybody who has a product that gets any sorts of traction knows what it means to be flooded with customer requests. So that's the problem that solves. That's the one that brings in most of our income. The second product is Saber Feedback. Now, you said I'm the founder, but I have to admit I'm not quite the founder. I acquired it uh, about eight months ago from the founder. It's a feedback widget or button that you can add to any website. And that's also a B2B SaaS. Tell us more about your desktop app that uh, you sold a while ago, and that's going to be uh, present in our conversation today. So back in 2008, inspired by Patrick McKenzie, again, probably somebody you and the listeners know very well, I started this um, desktop app that was for online poker players to track and analyze their playing history and optimize their game. It was a product that you downloaded and stored on your computer, you know, real old school, and you paid a once-off price for it and you got to use it forever. Well, in theory, every couple of years I would offer a paid upgrade and try and get some people to pay, but in principle you paid once and you got to use it forever. Now, that product got acquired in January this year. I had been running it for so long and I was really done with it. And feature up for it. I created with my small team actually to solve the problem we were having with this desktop app, which was getting inundated with requests for improvements. But it got to the point where feature upvote actually became more successful than the product that was designed to help us with. And therefore, we get to where we are today. You're essentially living uh, the bootstrapper's dream, and you're also playing the bootstrapper's playbook, as in you're doing a B2B SaaS and you're not inventing a new market category. It's clearly a very popular category you're playing in, but you're still making a decent living there. How does it work? It doesn't seem to be a shortage of competition in the feature vote category, the product boards and everything like that. 
Oh boy, are you correct. It seems like every <laughs> month I'm discovering yet another competitor and often I look at their product and their site content and it's almost indistinguishable from us. You know, it's really, really hard standing out or finding a, a marketing angle, but we do the basics. It helped that we had or I had the the income from this desktop app that was paying the bills for a while and that gave me the the, the runway I needed to get something else off the ground. We just stuck to the basics, just trying to make our product better week after week, month after month, and our marketing better week after week, month after month, and letting the numbers slowly and steadily grow. I never aimed for a, a fast uh, growth weight rate. In fact, if the growth is ever getting too high above 5% per month, I start getting quite anxious because I know that that type of growth in itself brings additional stress. And I think that long-term attitude is what's helped uh, be able to carve out a space in a crowded marketplace. Tell us about this new app that you acquired. What made it attractive for you? What made you pursue another product in your portfolio? Uh, that's a good question. I'm going to have to admit there's a little bit of a Gordon Ramsay side to this. I, I love those shows where <laughs> a specialist comes into a kitchen or a restaurant or or into a business and that's not doing very well, sees the problems, turns everything around, fixes it on the spot. Turns out in real life it's a lot harder than that. But I was kind of, I've long had the dream of taking an underperforming business and seeing if I can improve it. Some other things aligned at the same time. I also, because of the desktop app that I sold in January, I had the funds in which I could actually finally buy something to do something like this. And finally, the right product more or less appeared in front of me. So Sabre Feedback was founded by a British fellow called Matt Behrman, and he blogged very openly about his journey on this over the years, and I found his, his blog fascinating and I followed along. But he got to a point where he kind of lost interest and the numbers stagnated, and then finally he told us on his blog that he had taken a full-time job and now he was only going to do Sabre feedback like on the side and wasn't going to pay much attention to it. So I saw an opportunity. Uh, the Gordon Ramsay mindset, I had the funds to be able to buy it and somebody who didn't seem to be too interested in this product anymore. So I contacted him and asked him if he was interested in selling. Turns out I asked him on just the right day. And the answer was qu quite immediately, yes, let's talk about the amount. I love it how you say that it's a Gordon Ramsay model, but it's not new under the sun by any means. Uh, we had a fascinating episode here. It's episode 135 with uh, J.D. Grafham, and he calls it a multi-product portfolio model when, uh, you know, acquiring new products is much more interesting than starting from scratch. As a founder myself, I can confirm that those first couple years can be rather painful when you're just starting out. So I'm totally with you on that. Before we continue, I'd love you to tell us about one more thing you're running. It's the podcast that many of our listeners might know, and that's bootstrap.fm. Tell us how you became the host. Ah, that's another good question. So to those who came in late, it was started in 2013 by Ian Landsman and Andre Bultov, two bootstrappers. And they had it for a few years, but they got to a point where they wanted to focus on their core businesses, but they didn't want the podcast or the associated discussion forum to be closed. I knew them both quite well, and I had been active on the discussion forum, so they asked me if I wanted to take over. And my answer was, yes, 
No, that's horrifying. Yes, I'd love to do that. No, no. You know, this internal struggle between the idea of taking over something that was already running so I didn't have to start from scratch, kind of like what I do with Sabre Feedback, but also stepping into the shoes of two very talented individuals. So it took me a few months after I agreed to do this before I actually did my own episode. That was September last year. We're now in November 2020. And since then, I've done about 50 episodes and I've discovered that I really, really enjoy it. I enjoy the act of putting together the podcast, but I also enjoy the way people around me have changed and how they respond to me. It's like just by getting on the air and talking for half an hour every week, people tend to respect my opinion more than they did before, which I really like. <laughs> Same opinion, but you know, you just get seen as an authority just by getting your act together and recording and publishing. Yeah, we had this little pre-recording conversation here and we both share the sentiment that, well, we didn't talk this authority bit, but we did talk that weekly publishing makes you stronger in terms of discipline and this commitment of getting something out every week. It's pretty serious, isn't it? Oh yeah, you're dead right. I've been running my own business now since 2008. And one thing I've lacked in that time is any type of structure to my week and my routine. And I'm finding that the podcast I have of my own has given me that because I try to get an episode out every Friday and I have to get the recorded audio to my editor at a particular time before that so that he can get it to me ready. And that whole process is actually giving my week some structure that it didn't have for a long, long time. Well, I'm so glad it's uh, the new show has been working out well for you. Now let's talk about the main subject, why we got here together. and. Give us all the sentiments, what didn't feel right for you in the desktop app and why you were so eager to get rid of it this January. (laughs) (laughs) All secrets, all secrets. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, I'll let everything out of the closet. People for years have been saying SaaS, software as a service, it's the way to go. The days of desktop app, it's just a business model that's inferior. And I didn't want to believe it. Somehow I wanted to keep doing the desktop app and I found no excuses not to. And now that I'm doing it, I'm kicking myself for not having switched years earlier to running a, a software as a service. And I'll, I've made some notes here actually to get my thoughts in order. And for this, that was support. So a desktop app is running on an environment you have no control over. People customize their computer. They might misconfigure their computer. They might have other software that you don't know about interacting. And support is just hard. You're trying to do it by remote control or by uh, telepathic uh, communication. People often, they either don't tell you the whole story or they don't have the vocabulary to tell you what's going wrong. So you get like, my program doesn't work, your, your app doesn't work, fix it. And you've got to try and, get that out of them. Whereas when you go to B2B SaaS, you're in charge of the the environment as the product owner. It's running on your server or in the safe environment of a browser over, over which you have far more control. And I just cannot tell you how much that easier that has made customer support. I estimate that for the same revenue level, we get a tenth as many support emails for the B2B SaaS as we did for the desktop app. Uh, I just can't even tell you how that changes your life as a product owner when you're not getting buried in support emails every single day. 
yeah, the type of support you're getting, it's it's rarely in the radar of someone who's starting a business, but it, it becomes, everyone becomes wiser once they did it for a while. <laughs> for example, I think it's not just the volume, but also the type of support requests that you, you've been receiving uh, that had to do with the uh, technical environment, not the app itself. Was it the majority of support? Yeah. So this, there were two reasons why support was hard. And one was the nature of a desktop app, but it was also a, a complicated problem domain we were solving. And you know, often people were not computer experts or they weren't even computer beginners. And often what they needed was help in doing basic things like copy and paste or where to find the help menu or whatever. When you go to a B2B environment, the people you're, who are using your product are on computers all day, every day. You know, they're working in, usually in an office environment. At least my customers are. I, I guess it's not all customers. But they, they have a base level of proficiency with computers. But furthermore, they also typically have an IT expert they can ask for help. So when something's not going quite right, probably they're going to go and ask their colleague who's the IT expert first before they turn to you. So you only deal with the problems that are really your app and not the computing environment in general. Part of that is the difference between a consumer product and a and a B2B product. I have no experience with consumer-based SaaS, so maybe some of what I'm saying doesn't quite apply. I don't know. I It's something I don't want to do either, by the way. Uh, did you go the App Store route or did you just offer downloadable software with your app? I tried to go the App Store route at one point, and I can't for the life of me remember why I didn't. It may have been because we were running on using Java as the uh, the coding language, and maybe that wasn't well supported in the Mac App Store. Uh, it was a Mac app for the first few years. Um, so it was always a downloadable thing. And even that brings its own problems. You know, you'd be surprised how many people struggle with the the concept of downloading and installing an app. Again, this is something that you don't have to do with a SaaS product, right? You just have to sign up on a sign up in a form and, and you're in. So there was definitely that aspect to it too. You know, another thing about the the desktop app is sometimes we were at fault. Like there are bugs, all software has bugs, and I admit that my software has its fair share of bugs. And <laughs> I like to fix them when people report them. Now with a SaaS where you're in control of the environment, you can add extra logging, you can add um, special tracking that helps you find the, the problem specifically. You can even add a feature where you can sign in as your user and user as if you were them. With a desktop app, when there's a bug and you need to add something to the code to help you find that bug, you are relying on the goodwill of the customer. You make a special version of the app. You ask them to download it. They do it. They send you another issue report. Turns out that you still need more information. So you have to make another special version and ask them to download it again. And there's only so many times you can ask customers to do all that trouble before they just think, forget it. I don't want to use this product. I'm going to go to the competitors. So it's not just that support's easier, but the maintenance is a lot easier too of a SaaS product. One more traditional benefit of switching from desktop to SaaS. And it's sad that our episode turns into like the, the list of benefits of switching to a SaaS model, but really the biggest benefit is the recurring revenue. So what was your pricing model for the desktop app and what's your pricing model now for both of your web applications? So the desktop app was $99. It was initially $50, but after listening to the charge more advice over the years, I gradually put the price up to something 
better. And that was a once-off payment. Uh, and people would pay that and fairly, I expect, would I fairly in my opinion they'd expect to be supported forever because you know that was the promise you made buy this app it's a hundred dollars you don't say buy this app it's a hundred dollars and you're on your own you buy this app and expect to be supported the SaaS products well feature upvote starts at 49 dollars a month but i'd say speaking off the top of my head probably our average revenue per customers uh, lately has been about hundred dollars per month and, and Sabre feedback, something similar, a bit less than that, but that type of um, order of magnitude. So we're looking at earning per month per customer with the SaaS, what we earned over the lifetime per customer with the desktop app. And it's hard to exaggerate just how much of a difference it makes to have a higher revenue point for a product. You can get by with just a handful of traffic coming into your website each month, just a handful of those those people converting to being paid customers versus this massive funnel of the desktop app where you just need to get thousands of people coming all the time to download and try your software just to make sure you're getting enough people uh, buy it for it to be a, a sustainable product. I, I just cannot exaggerate or emphasize enough what a difference it has made having a subscription revenue model with customers who are prepared to pay month after month. In the years when I were following the mobile apps market, we don't have this in the conversation today as a topic, but uh, there were some popular apps like uh, Tweetbot and Reader, very nice RSS reader back in time. Not sure if it exists anymore. Uh, and they, um, they released a new version of their product every one or two years and they would charge like $5 for the new one, like completely new app. And they would receive so much backlash from the customers for like trying to pull off such a bad trick on them, trying to pay extra $5 for an app. It's miserable, really. Oh, that's horrible stuff that I remember that type of stuff and like people would be really nasty about it and wish death upon the developers just for wanting to charge enough money to be able to pay the bills. But this is actually a problem with the, the old model of desktop apps and I guess app stores were the same. You get this boom and bust. So you release a new version, you get a lot of PR for it, you promote it heavily, you get a lot of sales in the first month or two, and then it slowly scales, sl slides down. But you still need to be have a team available or the time available to support all these people that you've acquired all, all over time. So then people would, uh, developers would sell an upgrade, or in this case of the app store, they would try and make a, a, a new app. And you have to, again, try to convince a good portion of all your customers to give you more money. And this will come in one flood of of revenue that will slowly tail away. And you've got this horrible boom bust almost or flood of money, trickle of money, flood of money, trickle of money. And you're always having to plan to build the next version and work out what features go into that. And this actually is not very sustainable from a developer's point of view. And SaaS just destroys that with a much, much better model where you have very stable income. It might be very slow at first as you're building up the business, but once it gets to a certain level, you know, with people just paying month after month and the growth or, or even the decline is so slow that you can really do planning in advance and you know that, you know, you're not going to have to save up big time now because in six months you're going to have a big 
uh, drop in revenue. And that's, uh, if people haven't experienced that as a creator of software, consider yourself lucky. (laughs) An analogy comes to mind with uh, info products. Well, info products are in general much easier to sell, I would say. Uh, It's much easier to sell a book to your existing audience than um, try sell SaaS to them. Uh, but the book revenue has the same exact qualities as you described. You launch a book and then it trickles out and then you launch another one. So it's it's you still can get repeatable revenue from your audience. You just have to keep working, essentially. In a SaaS, it's a different rhythm, but you also keep <laughs> working. And basically, there is no free lunch for anyone. So <laughs> I guess it's... Uh, it, but it's still nicer to have the stable one, um, stable version of that, if that's what you're saying. Yeah. Hey, should I tell you a couple of positive things about desktop app? Because I think I'm being very negative here. (laughs) So one thing is you sleep easier with a desktop app. If you're a small team, especially with a SaaS product, when the SaaS is down, your company grinds to a halt. And it's not just that people won't give you money. It's that people will send you emails saying, help, I can't get into your product. What's going on? So you need to have this monitoring software that's always checking your sites running. And when it does go down, it tends to be at very inconvenient times, like three in the morning and you get a text telling you to wake up, you've got to get your server working. And then you have to decide what's more important to me, my business or sleeping. With a desktop app, because it's running on the user's computer, if your site's down for a couple of hours, one night or a few hours, it's not that big a deal. It's not something you want, but it's not that bigger deal and you can keep sleeping through the night and then deal with it in the morning because your existing customers can still keep using your product. So I think SaaS can be quite stressful, especially if like most of us are, you're new to the idea of making a website highly available, keeping it running no matter what. I mean, this is much easier than it, much harder than it sounds until you've done it. Especially as successful SaaS products tend to attract people who want to break into your software or find bugs. Uh, I don't know if you've encountered that with user list, Jane, but with feature upvote, we are on, under constant attack from people wanting to find security holes in our software. We have some incoming requests like that. Not a constant flow, though, thankfully. Hope you don't trigger that with (laughs) If I do, apologies in advance. Look, we don't hear about it much, but when we look through the server logs, we can just see people are prodding, looking for known uh, server problems. Like old versions of WordPress have known flaws, so people are trying to look at like WP admin URLs and so on. And every single day, this stuff's in our server logs. Fortunately, I found a good server admin right at the beginning of the feature upvote days, and he does a good job of making sure we have the defenses in place we need against that type of stuff. But never had these problems with the desktop app because it's running on people's desktop. Like, what is there to attack? So that's that's <laughs> one one thing that was definitely nicer about having a desktop app. I got to sleep better at night. Another thing is it was actually a more interesting coding problem. And I'm saying this as a developer. I am a developer, even though I run a business and I'm supposed to be a business person. My favorite thing is the coding side of stuff, the the sales, the marketing, the support, the other things I have to do, whereas the coding is the stuff I want to do. And the desktop app was basically an interesting coding problem. Whereas a SaaS app, especially a B2B SaaS app, most of our products are at heart a pretty basic CRUD type of app. You know, the basic create, read, update, delete functionality. 
you could even unkindly say it's a few database tables with some nice user interface forms in front of it. But I guess that is more or less what it is. And I do find that really boring. Come join Userless team. Uh, you won't think that uh, behavior-based automation engine is boring <laughs> and things <laughs> like that. Yeah, there are different kinds of SaaS, I guess. <laughs> yeah, indeed. And actually, I'm going to turn that around and say, although I say that the my SaaS, at least, my feature upvote, if I'm talking about that one, is uh, somewhat boring to code compared to the desktop app I had. I have to say that boring is mm -hmm. good. Boring is beautiful. Boring means steady, stable revenue. Boring means uh, uh, proven technology and proven methods and user interface that people know how to use because it's it's boring they've encountered it a hundred times before and that's actually another big big plus for SaaS products so have i just taken my attempt to talk about an advantage of desktop apps and turned it actually into an advantage of SaaS apps i think i have <laughs> i think i've managed to to accidentally turn my my advantage of a desktop app into a disadvantage but actually what you're doing with user list sounds very very interesting from Again, from a coding point of view, uh, I like the idea of a, a coding challenge. So perhaps that was what I should have done instead of feature up for it. But I'm very happy with the products I've chosen. You know, running a complex app is no fun at all. Like we weekly, we exchange sentiments on how how complex of a journey we selected for ourselves. Uh, and uh, because we have all kinds of complexities in all levels and, uh, you know, those crud kind of products are just technically i don't know lucky to a certain point because they can sleep much better than we can so yeah there's an advantage to that as well <laughs> and yeah. uh, you can you can spend time polishing things in your app our scope of work is so vast we rarely get time to polish things like deliberately except for the time we ship them of course yeah, that, that must be quite tough. And I have to say that it's no accident that I've picked a, a boring, basic CRUD type app. Before I did get into Feature Upvote, I would have maybe spent a year trying to work out what I was going to do next after I knew that the desktop app was not what I wanted to be doing by itself forever. And I thought long and hard about all types of different products. And I kept coming back to Feature Upvote because A, I had a need for it for my own business, but B, because I knew that Fundamentally, it wasn't all that hard. It was the type of coding I did for years when I worked in the corporate workplace. I, I didn't know how to make it work for a lot of people, but I knew how to make it work for one or two people. And that was a good starting point. And even though I could have picked something more interesting, for example, like what user list does, I, I just decided that's not where I was at this point in my career, that I was willing to sacrifice uh, coding challenges for boring and stable. Let's sum up as we're wrapping up today's episode, what situations can be still calling for a desktop app? And one success story comes to mind is the story of Ulysses, the writing tool. And we've had their founder, Max Zilleman, here on the show in episode 161. And he shared his own story of a giant infrastructure that he has covering like a dozen of app stores, which thankfully you didn't have to deal with. Uh, what uh, so that that's a desktop writing tool which means people need to access it at all times can you come up with other use cases when uh when a desktop app is better than a web app 
Yeah, actually just by looking at what's on my computer, I can see that there are some desktop apps I use every day and I pay money for them. And when they have a new version available to upgrade, I do it without even thinking. There's my my coding tool, IntelliJ. There's ScreenFlow, which I use for making video demos. No, every year they, they want more money out of me and I don't even think about it. There's Sublime, my text editor. So there are quite a bunch, quite a lot of things that people will pay money for. Uh, Balsamic is another one, even though they have a SaaS now, I still prefer use use their desktop product. I'm sure Peldi wouldn't be happy hearing that. <laughs> uh, okay, Peldi, if you're listening, uh, the SaaS is great, but I just prefer the desktop products and I hope you keep it alive for a long, long time. <laughs> yeah, and I use a product called IA Writer. I don't know, I haven't heard of Ulysses, um, but IA Writer is also a... a, a a text tool I use for writing scripts or articles and so on. So they certainly do exist. I, I have no idea how they do as businesses, but I think with the right product and especially with some really good marketing, they still can exist. I think the the idea of it being a one-person company as it used to be able to do with a desktop app, I think that's a lot, lot harder. And I think it's much harder to get started than it ever was in that area. Absolutely. Absolutely. By the way, I writer, I also use um, Byword, not Ulysses for writing. It's a very similar app to IA Writer, also pretty minimalist. Okay, that's interesting. So there's actually multiple products in this space that are doing what we're talking about and, and we can assume able to, to exist and as successful businesses. I really like that. The downside is that I bought it five years ago and still haven't paid anything since that. I'm not sure if it's a good supporting model for the founders. Yeah, there you go. And there's this product I use called um, One Password. And I think when I first started using that, you paid once for it and that was it. And then at some point they decided that if you wanted to get any more updates, you had to switch to a subscription model. So that's kind of a hybrid. It runs on my desktop, but it's a... I don't know if I pay monthly or pay yearly, I don't remember, but it's certainly a SaaS model of revenue, if not the classic SaaS concept of running in the browser. Oh, yes. One password is uh, we swear by that as a team because we have multiple shared accounts and things like that. So, and I, I believe subscription is the only way to run it. Well, thanks so much for uh, sharing your wisdom today. Uh, as we're wrapping up, uh, where can people find you and your products online? Sure. Let's go backwards. So we'll start with the newer one first. That's saberfeedback.com. This is the product I acquired earlier this year. Then there's featureupvote.com. This is the one that brings in the money that keeps the company running. And then there's bootstrapped.fm, which is the podcast that you mentioned earlier on that I took over about a year ago. I'm also on Twitter at uh, Steve off McLeod, which is probably the best place to get in touch with me. Thanks again, and uh, I wish you good luck with all your products. Thank you. It's been a pleasure to be on the show today, Jane. <laughs>